this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. Our guest this week is a musician, recording artist, soundtrack composer, Broadway composer, children's book author, TV presenter, and one of the most admired and accomplished singer-songwriters of the last six decades. As the lead singer of one of the founding members of the iconic 1960s pop rock group, The Love and Spoonful, he sold millions of records, appeared on dozens of television shows, played to sold-out venues, and even influenced artists like Paul McCartney, John Mellencamp, and Brian Wilson, to name a few. You know his famous compositions by heart. Daydream, Do You Believe in Magic, You Didn't Have to Be So Nice, Darling Come Home Soon, Did You Ever Have to Make Up Your Mind, Nashville Cats, Welcome Back, and the chart-topping number one hit song, Summer in the City. He's collaborated with filmmakers like Woody Allen and Francis Ford Coppola, and worked with a who's who of music icons, including Cass Elliott, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Paul Simon, the Everly Brothers, The Doors, Gordon Lightfoot, Jimi Hendrix, and Bob Dylan. And his timeless tunes have been covered from everyone, from Joe Cocker to Bobby Darren to Dolly Parton to Johnny Cash, to Elvis Costello. He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2008, and in the year 2000, along with his loving spoonful of bandmates, he was deservedly inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's got a new album and a new documentary in the works, which he'll tell us about. Also, Did I neglect to mention that Frank was especially delighted to learn that he was Italian? That's right. (laughs) That's right, man. And and had I known that John Sebastian was a fucking guinea, I would have canceled this interview. But, But... We're thrilled to welcome to this show a folk and pop music ambassador, a genuine bona fide rock star, and our only guest who could say he knew Timothy Leary, Jim Morrison, and Vivian Banks, the pride of Washington Square West, the legendary... John Sebastian. What an intro, my God. Hey, John. Yes. Wonderful. Okay, so what do you want to talk about, you goddamn what? I, I think first we should talk about my association with Jews. Because, <laughs> because here's the thing. My my first band, the Even Dozen Jug Band, here's, here's, the, uh, here's the guys in that band. Stefan Grossman, David Grisman, <laughs> Peter Siegel, Steve Katz, Danny Laufer, Josh Rivkin, Bob, Bobby Gerland, and then 
Maria D'Amato and Johnny Pugliese. That's me me and Maria Maria Maldor before she changed That's right. Maria Maldor. Midnight at the Oasis, Gil. Oh, jeez. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. And so, so, okay, so you've been associated with Jews. Yeah. And and you also, (laughs) oh, before I get to this other one, I've heard rumors about it, but I, I don't really know for sure. And you'll straighten it out. Where the name The Lovin' Spoonful comes yeah. from. Uh, it comes from a song by Mississippi John Hurt. The song was Coffee Blues. And uh, he, would, he would do the tune every night and, and carefully conceal from the little white kids that this was a song about cunnilingus. <laughs> there you go, Gil. Because <laughs> you know the old rumor. That, yeah, yeah. That you heat up a heroin in a spoon. Right. Yeah, that was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so it's yeah, it's not heroin. It's cunnilingus. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that's that's the move. So Steely Dan has nothing on the love and spoonful. As oh as, no, no, as far as getting as far as its name, the connotation. Right. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah, great stuff. Tell us about growing up, John. You and I talked on the phone, and you grew yeah. up. You grew up here in the village. We love That's having right. New Yorkers on this show. You grew up it, when you moved into the building in the village. Eleanor Roosevelt was living, yeah, across the hallway. Uh, I mean, we had a whole lifetime as poor people on Bank on Bank Street. That, yeah, don't, don't let me don't want to misguide you here. But then, uh, eventually, I don't know. Dad somehow charmed his way into the fifteenth floor of Washington Square West. And across the hall was Eleanor Roosevelt. How about that, Gil? Now, yeah. <laughs> and and now I guess I can do away with the questions. Uh, how did you get into show business? And <laughs> were any other members of your family in show business? It's, it's ridiculous because, uh, as I think you already know, my dad was the greatest classical harmonica player that's ever lived. Indeed. And, uh, but he was also like a good cook. So what had happened? He'd all of a sudden be, uh, you know, we'd be having dinner with uh, Max and Sonia Liebman, for example, uh, you know, your show of shows. And I'd be sitting there, I'm like eight, I don't know any of these people, and Max Liebman is complaining about Melvin. It takes me, I have to wait 30 years to go, oh, now I know who Melvin was. was Max Liebman was complaining about young Melvin Kaminsky? About Mel Brooks, yeah. About that, Gil. Wow. But everybody came through that house. It was constant. No, no, that was... And and, uh, uh, tell us about your mother, too. Yeah. uh, Mom uh, came to New York uh, originally from Dayton. But uh, she had had this kind of like a Tina Fey uh, life. At 16, she was already writing shows for uh, radio in Dayton. Then, then she gets the big job, moves to the big town, Cincinnati. And uh, she's there for a while. But then by 18, she's drafted to NBC in New York. Wow. 
So the only way that her dad would let her go is if he came along. So my grandfather was her roommate while the first year or so when she was in New York. But she was uh, writing funny for radio uh, and filling in wherever need be. You know, sometimes uh, a, a singer wouldn't show up. She could fill in. She was a credible singer. Uh, so uh, I, I kind of came at this all uh, around the corner. Um, by the time I knew what was going on, uh, my mom was big pals with Vivian Vance. Who became your godmother. kind of come up uh, from the Midwest together and, and uh, had this real tight friendship. And uh, Viv would very often use mom as a writer when she needed to punch up some stories uh, for Jack Parr. How about this, Gil? And, and now we all remember, uh, for those who don't remember Vivian Vance, which is shame on you. Yes, shame on yeah. you. Uh, she was like played the best friend of uh, Ethel, Lucille Ball. That's right. Ethel Mertz. Yes. yes. She, she's also in one of my favorite <laughs> movies, John. She's in The Great Race. Yeah. And, you know, she wasn't nearly as unpleasant looking as they had her in that show. Uh, this is one of the things that always struck me as, a, you know, I'm, I'm a little kid and I'd see the show and then here would come Viv and Viv looks fabulous. You know, it's just a very different, uh, a very different person that I was seeing than the folks who watch television. And I heard that, did Lucy want her to get fat? or at least dress her fat. I have no no real inside info on that, but I did hear that, that, that that was in her contract, that she couldn't drop below a certain weight. <laughs> That's interesting. Oh, man. Duff, that show business thing. It's tough. So she couldn't look better than Lucy. Is I <laughs> guess not. So they're going, you know, they're, they're also working summer stock. And I, I actually did that thing of the, you know, the baby that's in the, that's in the, uh, the trunk. That was uh, an amazing period. I have recently played several of the uh, venues that uh, Aunt Viv uh, used to play. So, so, John, those guys that were hanging around, Obviously, the Gaslight Cafe, uh, uh, most of those great clubs are gone. I think Cafe Wa might be the only thing left. Yeah, I, I think mean, so. I mean, Figaro is gone and, and, and so many of those wonderful places. That's uh, right. Did you, I mean, you were obviously immersed in that world and immersed in that scene. I always think of a guy like you, and I see the Coen Brothers movie Inside Lewin Davis. Oh, that was so fucked up. <laughs> so, okay. Dave didn't know their ass from a hole in the ground. Tell us, tell us why. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. You know, the, first of all, I mean, some of the obvious stuff. Like, you know, when Bob Dylan came in and, and, uh, and sang the famous three songs that right. just, like, put everybody away, the attitude wasn't to uh, uh, somehow be better or anything. It was just his uh, natural skills coming through. Uh -huh. uh, they, they, there were so many things. They had, 
they had uh, Van Ronk, a completely a wrong character. <laughs> Van Ronk was, first of all, didn't put up with any shit at all, and then also was this super sensitive guy. I mean, it, it, it was a complex uh, acting job that somebody didn't take on. I see. So artistic license. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, Chris, you know who was great in that movie, though? Seriously. The guys who did the... Uh, the, who did the the design work that that all oh, the production know, design made it old McDougal Street? There right. were just a couple of things where I went, wow, they went to some trouble. Gil, do you think you played some of those joints in the day? We know you couldn't remember the first place you played. Might it have been the Bitter End? Uh, yeah, I worked the Bitter End. The I think that was the one, the other end. Or, yeah, uh, the other end was. Yeah, was I worked place. the Bitter End, other end. Then I think, I don't know if that place is still standing. That was across the street from the bitter end. It was a big. Did you play the Night Owl Kill? Uh, 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 yeah, game? that was the Cafe A Go Go. Cafe A Go Go. That's yeah. gone. That's gone. Uh, uh, but uh, like, you know, uh, the Spoonful was playing the Night Owl until we got fired from there. And then we're working the Cafe Bazaar, which is an even like, wow, what a sorry ass club. This is a club. <laughs> Listen, this is a club where uh, there aren't even any villagers in this club. Uh, the only people that come to this club are bust in from Midtown. They're, and they're all people from Dayton. They're, they're like there. They're there to see the beatniks. And literally, at that time, uh, you know, we had guys called the Drag. And the drag was the guy that that uh, pulled the people in off the street. Come in, see the beatniks. You know, see. You know, <laughs> uh, it, it was so odd. And and Yanofsky would would uh, would run along behind one of these tourist buses, pointing to himself, going, "I'm one. I am. I'm one. I am one." <laughs> <laughs> Who did you see, John? I mean, you, you did you see Lenny Bruce? I mean, what comedians did you see? Unfortunately, no. Lenny Bruce, I mean, uh, I, I was in tight with other people who really knew him well, like Fred uh -huh. Neal. Right. But, uh, but I didn't see him. But I saw, um, well, I saw um, uh, Bill Cosby in uh -huh. his very earliest stages. And uh, I saw... Um, Did you see Richard Pryor or Carlin? Or, or So I saw Pryor when he was still doing Cosby's material. Wow. Yeah, he, he had no act. How about that, guy? Yeah, he had no act yet. But yes, I, di I did see him. and, and uh, You mentioned see. the great Fred Neal, who was a, a brill-building guy. And well, I guess so. Uh, somewhat, yeah. Yeah. Fred Neal wrote "Everybody's Talking," Gil from Midnight Cowboy. Oh. Yeah. Oh, this guy oh. was really something. The king of McDougal Street. Man, oh man. Oh, this is a guy with this, this voice where all the waitresses said, "Do not get within twenty feet of that voice. You're 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 going to take this guy home. You're not going to be able to resist." 
Really? Yeah, I, and- I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get pussy like crazy with oh my, my voice. God, <laughs> I tell you. He asked he asked every rock musician we've had on this show. We've had Peter Asher, Tommy James, uh, uh, Kenny Loggins has been here. He always wants to know. The first thing Gilbert always wants to know about is the women and the groupies, don't you, Gil? Yes. That's <laughs> it. Just tell me about the pussy you got, John. <laughs> Look, we could we could skip. I don't give a fuck about Bob Dylan. <laughs> or, or Woody I, Guthrie. I'm so Tell with me about you. the pussy. You I'm got. so with you on this. You know, here I was. I'm in Greenwich Village, uh, at, at, like Phil Oaks on one side, Bob Dylan on the other. Am I writing a protest song? No, I'm writing about 16-year-old girls. Adam, so. Adam. <laughs> How, how did you meet? I'm jumping ahead years here, yep. John. But how, how did you meet Zal and and uh, and and join the Mugwumps with Cass and Denny? Wow. Well, it's a kind of a sequence. All right. First of all, uh, I get a job with a Harry Belafonte protege by the name of Valentine Pringle, an enormous baritone who just man, he sings those you know big uh, chain gang songs and so wow. on. So anyway, I get the gig. Uh, let's see, we went to Toronto to play the Purple Onion. Then uh, 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 we started at the Village Gate. Uh, and then we get a gig at the cellar door uh, in Washington, D.C. And, uh, op- uh, and Valentine is opening for an act called the Big Three. And the big three is Cass Elliott, uh, Jim, not Jimmy Hendrix. Jim Hendrix, yeah. And Tim Tim Rose, the guy that wrote uh, uh, Hey Joe. And uh, so I'm coming up the stairs with Val. I've got my guitar. I got it tuned. And here comes Cass down the stairs. She's doing Val's act. While she's coming down the stairs, she's going, See my Mary, oh, this morning in my mind. See her walking through the corn with her yellow apron on. Makes me lonely, but it's all in my mind. And Valentine was not sure how to take that. Wow. But uh, uh, I fell in love uh, at... at Cass and I just became real tight, and we were pals for uh, uh, several months. I think I might have played the place again the same way. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she kept saying, oh, you've got to meet Zalman Yanovsky. You've got to meet Zali. And I said, great, yeah, fine. Well, it eventually happened that uh, Cass invited me to join her to watch the Beatles on the first Ed Sullivan appearance that they made. And she said, oh, and, and you're going to really enjoy it because, uh, well, Ringo's going to be here. Now, I'm going through the mechanics of this, going, okay, Ringo, the Beatles are going to be on Ed Sullivan, but Ringo's going to be at Cass's house. Now, think if you knew Cass, you, 
you, you really were kind of wondering how this might be. You weren't going, no, that's not going to happen. You were wondering, how? So it turns out, of course, I go up to her house, and it is a very, it's like a big six-footer Jewish Ringo guy. And that, of course, was Yanofsky. Oh, it wasn't the real Ringo. No, of course, Yanofsky. No, but if, if you look at the profile, you got to look at the profile. There is a common bond those two men have. And, uh, and, well, they, and, uh, they, they compared Zal to Harpo Marx at, at various points. I heard him refer to as Harpo Marx with a guitar. Uh, I, it's a good, you know, it's a good facsimile. It is. Uh, you know, uh, we uh, kind of uh, don't, we never realized Zalman has never gotten his due. The people that admired him, you know, no, it wasn't the Rolling Stone assholes. It was the guys like Eric Clapton. <laughs> you know, that's who liked Zalman. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's praise from Caesar. How, how, so the, the Mugwumps formed, she introduced you to Denny and, and, and Zal, and, and I know you weren't in the, the Mugwumps didn't, weren't a thing for very long. Yes, it was, it was very quick. Uh, it was an attempt to cash in on this Beatles idea, you know, and the only thing they didn't have was internal songwriting, internal guitar playing. Uh, <laughs> I think that was about, about it. So, so uh, it, it was very fast, but it happened all at uh, the cellar door uh, in, in Washington, D.C., at a time when the cellar door was very ritzy and a place where uh, a lot of diplomats and uh, politicians would uh, come. And on the weekends they would bring their children. And that's what launched the Mugwumps, was a thing that Cass Elliot named, Cass Elliot's name now, she was the first person that ever said the word teeny bopper. Oh, interesting. She called those, she called those shows the teeny bopper shows, and it, it just spread. Did the Mugwumps and, take their name from Naked Lunch? Uh, no, I think they took the name from the political party. Okay. The, the, yeah. Okay. And and the world and no, the Love and Spoonful what got the nickname the American Beatles. Well, you know that happened so unexpectedly because okay, we get finally our offer to play the Ed Sullivan show. And of course, we're, you know, we're snotty little beatniks and we're going, oh man, these guys, you know, they don't know what we're up. You know, they, they, they probably have no idea. They probably don't even know we're not English, you know. So anyway, uh, we're, we're standing there with our instruments and Ed starts to do the introduction. And it's a florid wonderful introduction explaining that these is this is the american answer to this english invasion and, and <laughs> i remember me and solly are staring at each other and i we could i knew we were both thinking we have to reassess our, our uh, you know we have to reassess what we think of ed here 
because he really he jumped right in and uh-huh. s- said all the right stuff. So uh, yeah, our uh, hat is still off to Ed Sullivan. And I heard that daydream uh, influenced Paul McCartney to write. You know, he was so gracious about that. Yeah, good day, sunshine. Yeah, uh, he. Uh, I just loved it that that he copped to it. Uh, he is copped to it, and Eric Clapton copped to stealing summer in the city. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's really funny how that all it's all coming out now. Brian Wilson goes, "Oh yeah, you didn't have to be so nice. What a good idea for something like." Good vibrations. <laughs> I, I neglected to mention Clapton in the intro as somebody somebody that you influenced, but McCartney was very complimentary, absolutely to, to, to you over the years. There's there's footage of John Lennon singing "Daydream" at a Beatles rehearsal, and there's there's an image of John. Uh, excuse me, there's an image of Paul. You can find it on the internet, walking around with a spoonful album in his hand. Yes, I, they, I, I, they were fans. Yes, they were. They they certainly were, and. Uh, and there is that recording of them trying to learn daydream. Right. And and you hear them play a couple of chords into it. They've got the beat pretty good. And then you hear George. George always mutters. You, you, you have to get used to it. And, and you hear George mutter. He goes, John, it's a minor. It's a minor. <laughs> That's cool. It's it's a it's a minor seventh, John. And then there's this pause, and you hear John go, "Fucking tunesmiths." <laughs> That's what the a, best compliment I ever compliment. got. Did George uh, and John come to see the Spoonful in London? Uh, yes, yes, George, George and John. But uh, uh, I mean that particular evening. Uh, also, uh, uh, Keith and Peter, uh, Keith uh, uh, Moon and 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 Peter Townsend. Um, uh, at least a couple of guys from. Uh, it, 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 it was it, it was an amazing evening. There were just so many people that, uh, that did show up. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but first a word from our sponsor. Now, you know, here's, here's a question. I usually wait till the end, but I want to ask it now. Yeah. I'm always amazed... Where, you know, I know how to write a joke. I mean, I know how to put, but where do songs come from? 
and and believe me, Gil, I, I, it's as much of a mystery to me as to anybody. If I could solve that mystery, come on, I, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you assholes. I'd be, I'd, I'd be writing more three-minute songs. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Although you, you you and I were talking on the phone, sometimes there there is a hint of inspiration. I was telling you that we had the Holland brothers on the show. Oh, uh, so and great! Tell us how that sort how they sort of factored into composing they, Daydream. They certainly did. Uh, the Spoonful spent a summer as the opening act for the Supremes, and it was one of the coolest summers I ever had in my life. And we're all on this big yellow school bus, and uh, uh, just uh, it 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 was just a remarkable summer, a remarkable summer. And there was a moment when Zalyanovsky starts bugging me, says, "You know, you're you're really losing it, Sebastian." What do you mean? It goes like you've you've stopped writing any of the cool stuff. All the cool stuff. It's you're not writing that anymore. Now now you're on to some I don't know sensitive uh, singer songwriter shit or something. But (laughs) you know you really what the hell? You got to write some straight eight shit. And I go straight eight shit. You mean like boom boom boom. Boom, baby, baby, boom, boom. Where did our love go? He says, yeah, like that. <laughs> I go, so yeah, well, all you're asking me for is like to write a Holland Dozier and Holland tune. He goes, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. And, and so it was, uh, I don't know, a week or two later that I, that I came up with Daydream. Oh, trying to maintain this straight eight feel. I love it. You're trying to imitate like, Holland Dozier Holland. I'm and trying you, to imitate baby love. Yeah. And you wind up writing a song that influences Paul to write Good Day Sunshine. I so, know. So, so we have a path here. A, yes. a to B to C. It's fascinating. Absolutely. Did Heat Wave, speaking of Holland Dozier Holland, did Heat Wave play any role in the composition of Do You Believe in Magic? Absolutely. Hold and on. He, and oh, the man wow. grabs his guitar. Oh, oh, hold oh on. wow. See, because here's the thing. You know, Heat Wave had this thing. And so these chords that climbed, I was so fascinated by those chords that I just kept uh, playing them. I figured out a way to play them on the auto harp by retuning the auto harp. And that really was the dawn of Do You Believe in Magic? (laughs) How about that, Gil? Boy, there's an old expression in the business, uh, steal from the best. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and you didn't have to be so nice influenced Brian. I heard it was God only knows. Well, I think it was mainly the idea that a uh, song would have a lead voice uh, that's going uh, 
like, uh, you know, the lead voice is, you didn't have to be so, be so nice. I would have liked you, would have liked you anyway. So like that idea of the, the, vo the uh, background vocals trailing the lead vocal, I think had, uh, uh, might've been the core of what Brian was uh, reacting to. Which which daydream cover do you like? Do you like uh, Bobby Darren's Art Garfunkel's Doris Day covered it? Uh, Doris Day, uh, you 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 really you can't put that down, boy. Yeah. That, no, no. <laughs> That's you know, cool. It's, it's she's easy to make fun of until, as a musician, you start to go, "Wow, she's yeah. always in the center of the note." Yeah. She's impressive. There are so many good versions of that. Yeah, but I, uh, I have to say, for accuracy, nobody touches Art Garfunkel. Really? Garf, Gar, Garfunkel wow. did a version for a children's album, and it was so, so right on. And, and you know, and he'd go like, you know, what, so is it what a day for a daydream or is it what a day for a daydream you know he would really really take it apart uh so yeah he he kills it he he's the man when it comes to daydream i got a quick question for you john from a listener because i told you we'd throw some of these at you sure paul ekstrom john i adore your music when you are composing a song how do you know that it's not a melody you may have heard before? Oh, don't don't pay any attention to that voice that's telling you. <laughs> don't, don't listen to that voice. Yeah, that's all. Finish the song and then go, how much is it like Got a Date for an Angel? Oh, it's only one note away. <laughs> I, I remember hearing uh, Billy Joel in an interview say he wrote one song he was really proud of. He thought it was his best work. <laughs> and, and, and then he was listening to the radio and said, oh, that's the song. Yeah. Well, Neil Sedaka said that Billy Joel, uh, uh, was it, was it uh, moving out? Or it was something where he, uh, I think it was, I think it was uh, the opening of Neil Sedaka's Love Will Keep Us Together. And he approached Billy Joel in a restaurant and said, you borrowed my opening for your song. <laughs> 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 I think I have that right. Speaking of That's covers, funny. by the way, uh, John, Elvis Costello's cover of, of Rainbows All Over Your Blues is wonderful. It is. It is. As uh, is his cover of a favorite Sebastian song of mine, which is The Room Nobody Love Lives In. And that was really wonderful to have that song covered. God, I love uh, that song. I really was glad he did that. Yeah. Really, really beautiful. How does your brother Mark factor into the, com the composition of uh, Summer in the City? Well, Mark uh, essentially did the heavy lifting. <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of, a, uh, I, I'm kind of an also-ran on that. Because what happened was my brother, he comes up with the song. Uh, and it's pretty much sort of, let's see, All right, let's, uh, uh, summer in the city, you know it's going to get hot, uh, but the, uh, the shadows of the buildings are the only shady spot. 
what a night. It's a different world. Go, I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What, what was that? <laughs> and so anyway, that, that uh, essentially the chorus uh, was Marx. And I had to uh, uh, fool around with it because I, I felt like there, it was so exciting when the thing went... Um, these two dominant chords, one on top of the other, was so cool, but that it needed something really tense before that happened. And that was where I'm, I sort of was mainly imitating Night on Bald Mountain. That that was the, really, wow. that, 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 oh yeah, that, that, that you know, that, that it was just the mood of that beginning of the dun and it 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 and to me it was sort of like <laughs> I don't know you know uh, kind of underachieving and trying to get the same effect. Not only is it a great song, it's a great record, Summer in the City. E- yes, indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Beautifully and, produced and, record. And I can't wait any longer. First, tell me about how you uh, how you were asked to do the music for the movie uh, Watch Up, Tiger Lily. Well, Gilbert's favorite. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, you know, that just sort of it, it happened in, in two for two reasons. One was that I was very familiar with Woody Allen's act. I'd never met him, but I used to go to the bitter end almost weekly, and he was playing there very, very regularly during that time. And I I just thought this was one of the funniest things I'd ever seen. And I would ask some of my friends, especially my mom's friends, remember, they're writers. These are funny people. And almost yeah. to a person, they went, no, no, he's creepy. No, that's, I don't know. The guy's kind of creepy. Uh, so it was, I, I used to use <laughs> him as a temp, as a kind of a measuring stick of, of, I don't know what I was even measuring, but it was so interesting how generations separated on, on uh, Woody Allen. So anyway, I hadn't met him, but... Uh, my manager was good friends with his managers. Rollins and Jaffe uh, yeah. w- were, uh, were uh, kind of, uh, they were occasionally advising uh, our manager, Bob Cavallo, and uh, they were all pals. And so I don't know quite, I, I kind of, I make this up, but the way it, it seems to me was like they had a movie that was all goofy and and kind of kooky. And we don't do really kooky. We don't know kooky, but these these village boys, they're kind of kooky. We know they're kooky. <laughs> so maybe, maybe we could get them to write it. Well, originally, it wasn't even called... Uh, it, 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 it was originally called POW. That's why that song POW exists, because originally that was going to be the title of the movie. Okay. okay. Tell me when to start. One, two, three. I 
I've always, always been, been the, the guy, guy with the finger in his nose when the passport picture gets taken. When That's the right. big guy takes out stealing chicken on the one court hold the bacon. <laughs> when they That's drop right. a piano from the 47th floor, I'm the guy underneath looking up. When a tidal wave strikes 100 miles at sea, I'm out on the rail throwing up. I mean, you We I've been waiting years to be able to sing that. <laughs> to sing that. I love that song. Well, uh, you know, uh, I got to say that uh, 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 the, the whole reason I wrote it was to make Yanofsky laugh. Many of the spoonful songs with funny lyrics were totally just to get Yanofsky laughing. That's great. Yeah. Well, you, uh, you know, you come, you come from a comedy background, so you come by it naturally. No, I mean, I used to sit with my mother late at night because uh, uh, she'd want to watch the, the talk shows because maybe uh, Viv had been on or something, and, and, but, and she would go through and... Uh, it, there'd be a, a a a joke and another joke and another joke and another joke with a small laugh, and she'd say, "You see, yeah, he went for four. What do you mean, Mom? Well, you you really can't. You you got a subject. You got to do three jokes. You can't go four jokes. So all of this stuff was going in, and it came out <laughs> in songwriting. <laughs> Spe speaking of the spoonful and and comedy. John, I got another question from a listener, Scott Mackin. I love all your records, John. Thank you for the work. Thank you for the art. I always read that the Spoonful were approached to be the original monkeys. Uh, what's, yeah. What's uh, the truth behind that? Well, it is true, but, you know, I had to be reminded of this. That's how teensy it seemed <laughs> to us. <laughs> It really did. Oh, do you want to pretend you're a rock and roll band on television and we write the songs and, and you just act? And boy, oh boy, did that sound dreary to us. So, I mean, really, uh, it, I don't think it was a 10-minute conversation. Uh, you know, in retrospect, people go, oh, this must have been a big thing. You got turned down or you didn't take the job or something no it was just that it, well you know here's one thing to do here's uh be the monkeys no no that doesn't sound good what else have you got so it just happened uh in a very casual way i'm so interesting. glad that interesting the road not taken Speaking of comedians, you worked with Groucho Marx. Very briefly. Uh, mainly, uh, Groucho introduced the Spoonful on, uh, boy, I don't know which one of those big variety shows. Oh, it was, it was Music Scene hosted by David Steinberg. Oh, great. Yeah. There, there you go. And yeah. Phil, Phil uh, Silvers also introduced the Spoonful on another one of those. Uh, hey, Gilbert, <laughs> this man has been introduced by Groucho, Phil Silvers, Ed Sullivan, Sammy Davis, and now Gilbert Gottfried. That's big. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
And you met Boris Karloff. Unbelievable. And I was really little, too. You got to remember now. Okay, so uh, Aunt Viv, Vivian Vance, somehow gets us tickets to Peter Pan. Now, this, this isn't the Mary Martin Peter Pan. This is the Gene Arthur Peter Pan. All right? So... I didn't know there was a Gene Arthur Peter Pan. Uh, that was really... That was the first on Broadway, I do think. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And... Captain Hook is Boris Karloff, and he is scary as shit. And I, I am watching this uh, in, uh, you know, uh, my little five-year-old. I'm being myself practically. And after the the the, the play, I, I I later went, wow, Viv worked this out. Vivian obviously had us as persona grata to go back and meet the cast well who was there was boris karloff he's still in full captain hook makeup and he has somebody has told him my name and he leans in on me and goes hello jb and i swear to god i i thought is he still captain hook i can't tell i really can't tell Wow, Gil. Jeez. Now, I also see uh, you were influenced by Lon Chaney Jr. Well, you know, uh, I I got fascinated uh, by the time I was about 12. You know, you get real ghoulish. And so then I had become fascinated by um, not only horror movies, but at that point, if you will recall, there were horror magazines. Yes, Famous and Monsters of Filmland. Thank I you. Used to You've get got it. Every and, month. And that's where you learned about how Lon Chaney had taken these uh, little fish hooks and planted them in his mouth and run it down the side of his cheek underneath uh, some some. Uh, actor's putty, uh, and then he could pull the the uh, uh, the uh, uh, the fish hooks, and it would make this horrible, uh, gruesome grimace. And that's when when the, when uh, the Phantom of the Opera does that turn away from the organ, and and you know that's when the, that's the the discover moment. And he does this thing. You don't see it because he's got these, this fishing hook line down, down his uh, arm, and he's, he pulls it, and that's what makes the grimace. Okay, so I hear this, and I go, wow, I wonder if I could make a grimace like that. <laughs> and so... So I just happened to be in my uh, uh, the garage, and I noticed, hey, here's some putty. Well, let's oh, take geez. this. It's boat putty, okay? Boat putty. <laughs> All right. Putty for a boat. That's right. So I'm putting this stuff on my face, and I'm, oh, wow, it's really working. Now that making the cheekbones enormous, it really looks like it. Oh, my God. It's starting to sting. Now it's really starting to burn. <laughs> I, I, I think my grandfather had to, 
help me out with oh i mean it was it was gruesome we we had to use like uh uh paint thinner and stuff to get it off it was horrible gil i'm trying to wrap my mind around that the leader of the love and spoonful is a monster kid but it oh, sounds that yeah. it sounds as if he is uh, uh, most definitely uh and it got me into makeup so by the time i was in prep school everybody thought i was gay John, we've asked every musician that we've had on this show, I was telling you, you know, Peter Asher, Tommy James, Paul Williams, uh, two things. Yeah. Do you remember hearing your, a song, an original song, on the radio for the first time? Number Absol one. Number yes. one. And number two, what was it like hearing a pop song with your name in it the first time you heard Creek Alley? Okay. Let's go for uh, question number one. Yeah. Um, uh <laughs> what, was, what was question number one? <laughs> Hearing your song on the radio for the yeah, first yeah. time. Uh, the Spoonful had uh, made the trip out to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And it really was uh, our, some of our first uh, visits to California or, or any of that, you know, any of that. And uh, we're, we had just rented what may have been our first rent-a-car. So we rent the, the, the rent-a-car. We're riding towards Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, California Girls comes on the radio. And we're already, Zolly's starting to uh, hit me. This is one of the ways he would express excitement. And uh, then... The next thing that comes on is Do You Believe in Magic? Whereupon Yanofsky pounces on me from the back seat and he's hitting me relentlessly. <laughs> and, 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 then, and then he and Steve are hitting each other. And it was just like a, 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 a convertible full of guys just whacking each other on the shoulder and the back and like, so uh, amazing to actually have it come over the radio. You knew you'd arrived, huh? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and go ahead, Gil. No, I just, because I, uh, you already let me sing, but a song that I love of yours was for the movie You're a Big Boy Now. If I could hear some of that. Let's see. Uh, um, I know this things. Never thought before that have to do with walking out old doors. You've been prepared as long as time allows. Well, I don't know how, but you're a big boy now. You know the girls, they're taking notice of you. They say your hair is getting curved. So shave today, you shave tomorrow as well, you'll run by you, and not a classroom bell, and I don't know how, but you're a big boy now. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, that's that's a fun gosh. movie, too. It was a fun movie. Yeah, yeah. One of the early Coppola picture. 
Tell That's us, right. Tell us about Woodstock, John. You weren't scheduled to perform. You really went there to see buddies. Uh, yeah, and this is the question that you can you can imagine me throwing the lasso up over the uh, over the transom and beginning to pull so, so that I can strangle myself and not answer <laughs> another question about fucking Woodstock. But, okay. Well, <laughs> Well, well, we don't, we'll have, we don't have to talk about it. <laughs> no, no, it, it, it's okay. It was an amazing accident, and it happened because I was try- I had heard from Paul Rothschild, the wonderful producer for me and uh, and uh, Janis Joplin and the Doors, that there was going to be a rather wonderful show happen somewhere in uh, in uh, upstate New York. And when they finally got it located, I simply went to the airport. I, I, I didn't have any idea how I was going to get there. But amazing, amazing, one of the Loving Spoonful's roadies was, manage, was road managing the incredible string band and was loading a helicopter outside the Albany airport to go to Woodstock. I gesture to him madly through a, you know, there was a big window you could look out in those days. He sees who it is and gestures, come on down onto the tarmac, which you can also do. I go around the corner to the door that opens down onto the tarmac, and I go... And uh, he says, you're trying to get to Woodstock. I go, that's right. He goes, this is your only chance, John. Get in this helicopter. And I did. And uh, that uh, I saw what you all see when you go to the movie uh-huh. to see that, that overview yeah. of like where it's all sleeping bags and tents and Volkswagen buses. You can't see any ground anywhere. And you you wound up in you you wound up in the show quite by accident. Yes, uh, I had been having a lovely time. Uh, now, now Saturday had come. I ended up on the stage. You got to remember also that security was so different at that time. Everybody knew each other. Nobody had to hide. Uh, you know, uh, so I would just go over and and. Uh, hang with uh, various friends and then uh, there was a moment when I was on stage and uh, Michael uh, was saying you know uh, we got to sweep the stage we can't put electric acts on here but we could just use like a guy who could hold them with one guitar and I'm agreeing with all of this we're all staring out at the at the crowd remember and I'm saying, yeah, yeah. And then I look around and I realize they're both looking at me. And I say, fellas, I, I, I didn't even bring a guitar. <laughs> and Michael says, <laughs> says well, you, you have a few minutes to find one. And that was my, that was my, uh, I ran down into the sort of basement below the stage where Timmy Harden was sitting in a way relaxed mode. Great Tim Harden. Yes. I said, Timmy, well, I had been, you know, remember, I'd already played with him for a couple of years. Sure. 
so I could ask him, can I borrow your wonderful Harmony Sovereign? And I did, and uh, got up there and uh, did a little set. Were you and feeling no pain during that set, Sean? I, I couldn't <laughs> describe. I, I, I couldn't describe it as painful. I, I, I yeah. <laughs> no, everybody. Was it the blue acid or the purple acid? You know, everybody really wants me to be more stoned than I was, and okay. I, I kind of went along with it uh, very often. Uh, print, <laughs> when, print, print the legend, John. So, so you know, I'm a New York guy. And New York guys are cautious. And so when I got offered the whatever little blue pill I was offered, I said, well, that's very nice. And I broke it up into a couple pieces and I took a little bit. Now, remember, nobody's told me that you're going to, you know, perform before the biggest audience you've ever even seen. Not even, you know. Yeah. So, uh I'm just glad it went as well as it did. I only yeah. forgot one verse. It's legendary, and you're in the movie. I know. <laughs> and and the weather uh, started acting up when you were out there. Well, yeah, it had been acting up, and this is the part that, like, who who could who could predict that the sun came out as I'm finishing my set? It looked crazy good. <laughs> I'm going to read you something from a fan, John, if I have a minute. This is from hey. Car Carla Haler, and she is a school teacher. We do this thing called Grill the Guest. We tell our listeners who's coming on ahead of time. She yes. writes, oh, my God, oh, my God. The very first concert I ever went to was John Sebastian live at the South Shore Music Circus in Cohasset, Yay. Massachusetts. He saw security trying to give the bums rush to someone, and he asked them to stop and invited all the people who were listening from up in the woods to come on down. My brother immediately came home. We got me, and we sat in the aisle as John performed the four of us. Uh, I love that Garth Williams, illustrator of classics like Charlotte's Web, was his godfather, and I actually own a copy of J.B.'s Harmonica. Ah, your, your children's book, which you yeah. wrote and John, Garth uh, illustrated. Please th uh, thank John for being a part of my life and let him know this old teacher... Uh, still has a crush on him all these decades later. Ah, uh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Isn't that sweet? That really is, yeah. You've influenced generations, John. You have to tell us, this is a wild card question, uh, Keith Moon. Yeah. We had Peter We had Peter Noon on the show a couple of months ago. Remember, Gil, it's serious? Uh, yes. And Peter regaled us with some Keith Moon stories. You are on Keith Moon's only solo album. Yes. Everybody was on that album. Ringo, Howard, our friend Howard Kalen, Joe oh, Walsh, yeah. Dick Dale, Ricky Nelson, Harry, Ron the great Koss. Harry Nielsen. Yeah. Who's that? Uh, that uh, a guy you wouldn't know, Ron Koss, who was I actually, he, did, he plays the backbeat on Welcome Back. Welcome back. Like beautifully, because he'd been, a, he'd worked for Motown. A Polish guy, by the way. The only other Polish guy uh, beside the bass player that worked at Motown was Ronnie Koss. Gilbert, even a young Miguel Ferrer, the future actor, Jose Ferrer's son, oh! is on that record. I, yeah. don't I don't quite know why. What was your, what was your experience? We'll ask you, I want to ask you, too, about playing with Hendrix on Timothy Leary's album, which is surreal. But first, tell us something about Keith Moon. Well, you, you got to remember that, that Keith 
really would tone it down for Catherine and I. Uh, he, he was in love with any incredibly beautiful blonde, and Catherine really fit the bill like crazy. Your wife? So, yes. Yes. And so, uh, so we actually went and, and stayed with Keith uh, and Mrs. Moon and uh, in, in England when, when we went. And uh, when he came to the United States, he, he kind of paid me back by showing up unannounced at our little house in Laurel Canyon. Catherine and I are, are sort of starting to, we're sitting in front of the fireplace. We're starting to get in the mood. The door knocks. <laughs> I open, I go to the door, I open it. And not only is Keith standing there, within a kind of a wonderful apologetic English grin, but behind him is the entire Shanana in the in the gold lame, Gil. In, in the gold lame. How bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. And and just to show you what a different guy he could be, he stayed at our house. And he cooked us a beautiful Indian meal. I wow. mean, a complex Indian meal that was really delicious. Wow. <laughs> so that's one of those things. You didn't see that coming. So you, did, you didn't see a lot of bad behavior from Keith? Uh, well, uh, it wasn't that I didn't see any, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, how about this? So... Uh, the, the, the who has gotten kicked out of every decent hotel in San Francisco. So now they're at this funky little motel, you know, where you walk outside your room and you're, you're not in a hallway. You're, you're on a porch, kind of. So uh, one of the things, uh, the qualities of that room was that they had big picture windows that looked out on these terraces. Well... At that time, Peter Townsend was wearing these white boiler suits. So, and, and at that time, Peter and Keith's uh, pranks on each other were nonstop. So, Keith stole one of Peter's boiler suits, and he brought it to us because he knew that we had all of our tie-dyeing dyes with us, and we tie-dyed Peter's boiler suit. <laughs> and then Keith crawled out on the terrace and got on the picture window and taped the boiler suit to the picture window. <laughs> so now when Peter wakes up, he gets about four seconds of being horrified. He thinks that some guy is about to jump into his room. Uh, as it happened, uh, there had been some kind of motorcycle guys who had gotten mad at him because they thought he was looking at their girl. <laughs> no, no, your girl was looking at him. Uh, but uh, they, uh, they ha had made threats, and he thought that he was going to get beat up. What about I, jamming I, I, with Hendrix on the, on the Timothy Leary album, which is mind-blowing? <laughs> really, really not not as much of a thing as, you know, first of all, 
I knew him as Jimmy James, all right? And he was a very mm-hmm. modest, soft-spoken man. This is what folks don't know about the guy who you know, flicks his tongue out and, and plays with his teeth and all that stuff. He, he was a, a mild-mannered guy. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Let me ask you about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000, John, because you can find the video of you guys being inducted by Mellencamp on video, and it's, it's very touching. I mean, you thank a lot of people who helped you along the way. Yeah. Like Paul, I, I, like, and you get choked up talking about people like Paul Rothschild and, uh, and, and Cass Elliott, who you refer to as your, your Jewish angel. You thanked Lieber and Stoller. You even thanked the Henry at Manny's Guitar Shop. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Who's said, more important than Henry Goldrich? Come on. Uh, the, the, late, the late lamented Manny's. Oh, oh, but hey, how, how long do you think it's been since I called Henry Goldrich? I called him yesterday. You did? Yep. Wow. I t- called him because I wanted to let him know that uh, he gets a, 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 a kind of a credit and a thank you on uh, this new album that me and Arlen Roth just just finished up. Uh, Arlen Roth said, have you ever done like a spoonful uh, instrumental album? And I said, no. He goes, we should do that. And, and we ended up doing it. When is that coming out? When can we look forward to that? Well, I think it's going to be held until it's done, but I think it'll be held until spring. And you were a big fan of, like, the whole Rat Pack, those type singers. Well, uh, this uh, uh, might be a, a misguide. Uh, I, I was so much more interested in Fats Domino. Than, than <laughs> I, I really was. And I understand that Sinatra, I, I understand he's the greatest that's ever lived, but I like Dean Martin better. <laughs> <laughs> we like we like Dean Martin better too, <laughs> John. But uh, uh, going back to that that rock and roll uh, uh, induction. By the way, doing research, I found that Zal was in National Lampoon's Lemmings. Yes, that's off, right. Off Broadway, which which I loved, with Belushi doing the cocker and and Chevy Chase just hating him, just couldn't stand. To be in the room. <laughs> oh no! And 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 he was always that way, and the, he, he maintained that relationship with Chevy Chase forever. Yeah. You know, it's 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 bittersweet to watch you guys up there. You're playing for the first time. You played a couple of tunes with the Spoonful for the first time in many years, and it was two. It was the year 2000, and and sadly, Zal would be gone only two years later. Yes. And 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 you know. Tell, tell us about your friendship, what, what, he, what he meant to you, not only as an artist, but what he, what he meant to the Spoonful success. Because people should remember him. He was, he was really uh, uh, Look, not, only, not only a wonderful guitarist, but a legendary rock and roll character. Absolutely. And uh, really, there's never going to be anybody like that guy. Uh, my uh, assessment is the love and Spoonful I don't know if it would have happened without Zolly. I mean, sure, I could write some cool songs and and uh, uh, play a good, solid, foundational-type guitar, but what Yanofsky was doing 
uh, I think Clapton even said it. He's playing the same licks that I'm playing, but he crosses his eyes and sticks his tongue out. <laughs> this 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 listener Jeffrey Bender writes. I grew up in a town in Canada called Kingston, and your former bandmate. Oh yeah. Your former bandmate Zalyanovsky owned a restaurant there called Shea Piggy. Yes. We went on a date with a beautiful girl. I was on a date with a beautiful girl at his establishment, and he stopped at our table. He said our food looked great. He took a bite, and he winked at my date with an ooga booga and kept on trucking. <laughs> ooga booga. That's right. Jewish rock and, star, Gilbert. Now, and I heard that Sally was, um, he would just launch into Jewish songs. Uh, that, yes, that could happen. That could happen. And, and, you know, because he knew Yiddish and he passable Hebrew as a result of being on a kibbutz. Uh, <laughs> his, dad, his dad thought he was going to hell, so he'd send him to Israel to be on a kibbutz. And of course, <laughs> Yanofsky just had fun with it, and he, he, I think he broke a tractor or something, and they sent him home. <laughs> Before we get to the final plugs, John, one question about your dad from Bill Cates. I, yes. feel not, I feel not enough of the world knows about John's father, whose name is, is also who's also John Sebastian. His classical harmonica playing rivals uh, Larry Adler and all the other greats. It creams Larry Adler. It creams Larry Adler. Come on. It kicks Larry Adler's ass. It does. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about him, and and will there be an an accessible collection of his stellar recordings? Well, you know, it's funny that uh, there's some kind of uh, uh, kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, uh, like Re- uh, revival or renewed interest? Uh, yeah. Um, what happened was that uh, I got a call that really... St- yesterday, I got a call from a classical music company that released one of Dad's albums and said, like, let's release more. And so we are uh, hopefully uh, going to be able to release Dad's Bach album, John Sebastian plays Bach, which is really remarkable, and uh, 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 several other albums of dads. Well, we should tell our listeners who love music to to do the research into your dad. I mean, he played with Leonard Bernstein. Uh, he, you know, he did recital at Town Hall. I mean, he did some wonderful things uh, in Absolutely. his in, in his career. Uh, you were telling me on the phone that, of course, he was groomed to be a banker. <laughs> well, his disappointed, dad, disappointed no, his parents. Uh, well, what it was was his dad was the banker and and had really been so happy because his son was magna cum laude from Haverford. He had all these credits. He was going to be a uh, you know be a uh, in the foreign service and uh, and then he comes back from Rome after a summer of like hanging out with with Picasso and and Garth Williams and goes, no, I'm going to play this little instrument in my pocket. If people go on YouTube, there are some of his recordings. There's a a concerto from 1963, Malaguena's on, on YouTube. People, people can find it. People who are, who are hardcore music fans should really dig your dad's work. And before we get to the plugs, John, some of your solo albums, I mean, I used to have the welcome back record on vinyl. Yeah. 
there's some wonderful tunes on that. <laughs> that that didn't occur to Warner Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> I like that record very much. Uh, and also, we'll recommend the John B. Sebastian, your for your debut solo album. Good which album. I, which I like very much. Produced and, by uh, Paul Rothschild. Yeah, and the album you did with your pal David Chrisman in 2007, Satisfied, is, what? A, is also a must-have. That's a lot of fun. A lot that's of fun. That's a terrific record. And when you wrote the song, Welcome Back, I heard they had to change the title. Yes. Uh, originally, that show was called Cotter, right? And uh, uh, I was brought in. They said, you know, you know, can you come up with something on this? I, I wrote a song that night and, and came back with it the next day. And, uh, you know, they, they, they were, they were uh, awed uh, by the fact that I could get it that fast. They, yeah, in fact, they said, you know, how did you finish this that fast? And I said, you know, fellas, you, you're forgetting something which is that I was a sweat hog. See, as a dyslexic kid, I was always the guy that got the report card. John seems to be an intelligent boy. That was the first part of the <laughs> sentence. <You know. laughs> uh, that's where we met, John, in 2011 at the TV Land Awards. I'll be you were, Welcome Back Cotter was getting an award. I was writing on that and, show. And for anyone who forgets, welcome back. <laughs> your dreams are your ticket out. Very good, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Did you deal with the legendary James Comack? On that show? Uh, no, actually, uh, Alan Sachs was okay. the primary guy. Uh, Comac got the credit, but uh, Sachs did the work. Gotcha. And what about Gabe Kaplan? Did you work with him at all? Uh, uh, well, I certainly met him. And in later years, of course, we would get paired up very often. Where, what a natural. We get, you know, we get him and you have Sebastian open. So <laughs> I, I did get it. And, and it was a very funny uh, sequence that would always happen because uh, I'd get dressed up, I'd do the opener, I'd change my clothes, I'd get, get uh, you know, be going downstairs in the elevator, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, here's, uh, uh, he, uh, he's actually got, a tux on now and I didn't know it but he is a very serious gambler and so he would do comedy shows at casinos just so that he could go and gamble oh he made a fortune playing poker yeah 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 he did very well for himself did you did you work with Rodney Dangerfield or open for him I opened for Rodney yes and <laughs> Rodney it was I loved Rodney Rodney came back before I went on and said, so uh, I know you've never, uh, you know, been at one of my shows, but, uh, you know, this, it's, a rough, it's a rough crowd. And, jeez, uh, uh, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I, he, he's just sort of fumbling for something to say, I'm really sorry you have to open for me, is essentially what he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> but he was so right, 
because I went out there and like I, I, it's the sound starts after about 10 minutes. I can't quite discern. The stage. Get the fuck off the stage. So, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, so, uh, I, having, I knew I had Rodney's support on this. And so I said, folks, I've been hired to play 40 minutes before Rodney does his act. But if you piss me off, I'm going long. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm sorry you and Gilbert never got to share a bill. Ah, uh, me too. <laughs> Let's thank some people here, Gilbert. Uh, Jim, our, our friend Jim Della Croce, who made this possible. Yes. May, may I say in 335 shows, we've never had more cooperation and help that we got from Jim. Absolutely. And, and, and Path, uh, he's an angel, and Pathfinder Management, we will thank uh, uh, the engineer, the wonderful engineer here, uh, Robert, yes, Robert, Robert Fratza. Robert Fratza, with two Zs, uh, Lizzie Van and Dave Bennett. Ben uh, Dett. Ben yeah. Dett. He's been, okay, the guy oh, ben Dett. Starts, starts as my manager. Uh, two weeks later, I have Welcome Back Cotter. So that worked out well. Very nice. And uh, tell us about the Bearsville Theater Complex, John, and what's going on with that? Well, this has been rather remarkable. Now, remember, I, I've been living in this town since 76, and various people at various times after the passing of Albert Grossman tried to sort of fix things up, you know, a little paint and uh, maybe an a, a, a air wick in the basement or something. But... Uh, Lizzie Van really went after this like it was a heritage property and has really treated it that way. And uh, we're uh, <laughs> trying to work out whatever we can in the way of, uh, of uh, live concerts or televised Good. concerts or whatever is possible. Obviously, your Woodstock experience meant enough to you that you settled there for many years. Absolutely. I, I came up here. Uh, Bob Dylan invited me up here. I think he wanted me to be a bass player at the time. And I ended up there with uh, Albert Grossman and him in that uh, uh, cool little house on the top of the hill. You made a life. Yeah. yeah. So visit uh, for our listeners, visit Bearsville, like a bear, Bearsville Theater. Yes. Com, and we'll plug uh, Jim's memoir, which is coming in 2021, Maximum PR. I tell you. I love the title. John, as Abbas once sang, thank you for the music. Thank you very much for your interest. It means so much to so many people. I, I, I barely uh, got into the questions that we had for you. I have about 40 of them. I was only able to read five. Well, Gilbert, and, and, and you and I should uh, do this again sometime. Well, we will. I think I think we probably got to about one third of the Sebastian anecdotes. That's right. I, I haven't even gotten to the part where Lightning Hopkins is obviously going up to my mother's house. And <laughs> <laughs> can you tell and us was, one, Can you tell us one thing about Jim Morrison before we go? Uh, uh, not as exciting as one might think. Really. <laughs> yeah. Disappointing. No, no, no. Well, here's what it was. Paul Rothschild, and, and I don't say this as, as a brag, uh, uh, 
because you know how famous the doors are in retrospect uh, compared to the spoonful. But at the time, Paul felt that uh, he might be able to get more cooperation from Jim if I was there uh, because I had more of a reputation as just like a regular musician. Right. <laughs> I, I you know, like not a guy with 18 women crawling on his back. Uh, yeah, so it, it did actually have somewhat that effect. I mean, I don't know whether it was just that he had, you know, he was a sober boy that day. Uh, but uh, uh, he was very cooperative. I was excited out of my mind uh, because uh, uh, the bass player is Lonnie Mack. And that, that, to me, was the big stuff. Well, that is you. For, for all our listeners who ever wondered, that is John playing that wonderful harmonica on Roadhouse Blues. <laughs> And uh, we could keep talking to you for hours because I have like 15 more cards about your career. But uh, in the interest of time, I also want to wish a happy birthday to our friend John Murray, our engineer who has done incredible things for this show. Oh, happy, happy birthday. birthday, John. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. And, and Gil, do you want John to take us out maybe with one other tune if he's feeling generous? What do you think? Okay. Oh, geez. So How do you many. feel, John? Your choice. Okay, we're going to do a duet, Gil. Let, let, let's, okay. uh, I'll do the uh, intro to You Didn't Have to Be So Nice, and then we'll do it. Okay, I'll see how many words I know of it. Okay. <laughs> Gil, don't fuck this up. Yeah. <laughs> John, I try, John Murray, I tried to give you a birthday present by having John Sebastian sing, but you got a Gilbert Gottfried vocal. It's great. <laughs> which, is, which is much more valuable. That's yes. right. <laughs> you know it. Well, that was fun. John, you are a sport. You're a legend. We can't thank you enough for this. You bet. We will look for, we'll look for the album and the documentary. And boy, do you need a documentary about your life. <laughs> I heard someone refer to you as the Zelig of popular music. I love the term. I love the term. <laughs> Gil, what do you think? Oh, well, I, I, I mean, to, to be able to sing with you, especially pop, 
because I mean, I remember the words to that. That song stuck you, with me. It really do, too. Not very many people do. <laughs> you know, when, when, when Jim, when John's manager reached out to me about John, and of course, John has been on our list, I said, you won't believe the timing of this because Gil, we did an episode last week and Gil was singing Pow from, <laughs> from wow. uh, What's Up Tiger Lily. Yeah, so, yeah. so it was meant to be. It was kismet. And I still want to say I'm pissed off having to interview a fucking guinea. <laughs> <laughs> So, so next week, we'll yeah. be, next week we'll be interviewing the Prime Minister of Israel. Oh <laughs> boy! Uh, an an honor working with you, John. Well, thank you, Gilbert. I, I I really have enjoyed myself, and I look forward to another chance to do it some more. John, our listeners will eat this one up. We got a big response on on Patreon, and uh, we can't we can't thank you enough. And these these songs will sustain us for the rest of our days. My pleasure, my pleasure. So this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre and the great John Sebastian. How is it you get the Santo Padre? And the Matza Grist in the same show. <laughs> Gilbert, if you only knew what that meant. <laughs> Ciao. Sebastiano Pugliese. See. Si.